Dadsnet Original Podcast. Welcome back to the Dadsnet Podcast. On the show today, we are welcoming a guest who's been on our screens for many years. A, a conservationist, a stepdad, an author, and a passionate campaigner is, of course, Chris Packham. Hello, Chris. How are you? Hello. I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, good. Um, it, it almost feels like spring's on the way. It's sunny outside. The birds are really kicking off today um, on account of that little bit of sunshine and a little bit of warmth. So although it's still only, you know, February at this time we're recording this, um, yeah, feels good. Feels good. Sunshine and bird songs put a smile on my face. It does. Do you know, I felt the same this morning as well. Obviously, it depends on um, you know, the day of recording this, but it's um, I felt the same. A bit of sunshine first thing in the morning makes a world of difference, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And normally I'm up and out with my dogs. I like, you know, to work as, walk them as soon as it gets light, go for a walk in the woods, sort of get myself grounded for the day. Yeah. Um, I didn't take them out this morning, so I'm missing that, maybe later this afternoon. But I was wandering around in the garden and, yeah, sunshine, little shoots coming out, I have to say, hazel catkins hanging on the on the hazel, which is good. Uh, woodpeckers have been drumming. Yeah, it's all happening outside. I, 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 must, I must ask the question. I, I don't know whether you get it a lot, but is spring your favourite? time of year like like is it your favorite time of year or do you prefer other elements i mean yeah it's difficult to have a favorite obviously um i I think there's a misconception that autumn and winter are less interesting from the natural history point of view because Mm -hmm. things have migrated away or they've hibernated or they've all died and it's all about you know death and decay it's all about fungi and and whatever Um, but that's not the case of course those seasons are very much part of a cycle which is preparing for the explosion of spring i mean i can't deny that you know the first few days of may when the leaves are breaking their buds particularly beach in this part of the world um the vibrancy of the colors um, you've got brimstone butterflies, that beautiful sulfur yellow, the males bouncing about down the hedgerows. It, it is tremendously exciting. But I mean, it, I've, we've just gone through winter. Uh, the tawny owls have been going mad in the garden. That's always a joy. The foxes have been barking. You know, we've been lucky enough to have a couple of frosts. So it's actually felt like winter uh, mm-hmm. as well. So I, I like all of the seasons. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the explosion of spring is difficult to resist, basically. Yeah, I bet. I bet. It's, um, I, I, I do. I must agree as well. I, I, it's, it's, I think it's my favourite time of year um, as well. My wife, she says I drive her mad because I'll say, oh, such a lovely day today. Fresh, a fresh morning. And she kind of rolls her eyes. And, but, but it is. It, it changes my mood. If it's, a, if it's a nice morning, my whole day is different. No, I think that's the same for everyone. And why wouldn't it be? Fundamentally, you know, when you go back into the not too distant past in our history, the weather, although we talk about it all of the, the time in the UK, in our heated, air conditioned, whatever, you know, workspaces, it's not having such an impact. But it wasn't so long ago when that would have been shaping, you know, whether we were going to be successful that day when it came to staying alive, you know, yeah. hunting or gathering food, weather would have had a significant impact, not just climate, but, but weather. So it's not unnatural that we, that we look at those sorts of things and and respond to them and when of course we know that there are you know neurological impacts of 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 long winter days lack of light low vitamin d all of those sorts of things which we are aware of and obviously can be treated but yeah i'm not surprised that it puts a smile on your face and and keep saying i love today it's a fresh spring day i will i will i'll tell my wife i'm not going to (laughs) stop Um, Chris, today is the today we're recording on the first of February. You've got a brand new book out. You've written a, a various books, um, but today's a new one. Why don't you just start by just telling us a bit about that that new? Well, book yeah, out. For, for the people viewing as as well as listening, then here it is. It's um, part of a series uh, uh, called Little Experts. 
Um, and the idea from my book, which is entitled Superhero Animals, is to engage young people um, with the natural world. And at the moment, you know, there's fierce competition to do that. They're bombarded by media that we didn't have when we were kids, certainly. So fighting for attention is quite difficult. Superheroes are very popular. And the animals that I've chosen in the book do actually perform, you know, superhero functions when it comes to the sustaining a healthy planet. Um, that it's not all about big and glamorous animals. I think there's a tendency to focus on the tigers and the polar bears and the pandas and, and those sorts of things. You know, it starts with earthworms. It also includes wasps, bees and ants. Um, and it focuses upon some species which we are traditionally taught, you know, through stereotyping not to like as much, things like vultures. But my point is that all of these animals play a fundamentally important role when it comes to the health and well-being of our planet and therefore us. So the reason I've chosen these particular group of animals is they all have a positive impact um, often through a surprising mechanism on on our lives on on earth and of course the underlying mission from my point of view is to get young people children principally you know the books targeted for six to nine year olds um, to engage with this wildlife develop an admiration and an affinity for it because we're obviously living through a time where we need to do everything we can to protect it and ultimately the more people that love it the more people that we can call upon to to look after it when it needs it. Yeah, and and how do we like how do we do that? Because there's like you know I used to be a primary school teacher as well, so I I kind of have that experience as well as being a dad, and I really want my kids and the children that I used to teach to grow up really being interested in the world around them and really having a passion to protect it, to look after it, to learn about it. So, you know, this book is, I guess, part of that process to inspire. But how, how do we do that? Like, what needs to happen to, to, to get our children off their screens, off the media and, and out into the world around them? Well, I think that obviously we're facing climate breakdown and the impacts of that are very serious. And particularly for young people's generations, they're going to live into it further than we are. Um, and, and they are going to be called upon to address it. And very thankfully, you know, we do have the tools and the technology to address many of these issues. We're just not doing it now broadly enough and rapidly enough. Um, and they're going to be left picking up the pieces. So we've got to best prepare them to be able to do that. And we should therefore continue to, you know, lobby decision makers to take the right steps at this time, continue to research and develop new technologies um, where appropriate, and even the implementation of natural technologies, you know, just allowing nature to do its own recovery, which it's very, very good at, obviously, um, to make sure that they've got that platform to work from. But as you as you point out, unless they're engaged with it, then it's going to be more difficult. So I think school plays an important role. There's no question about that. Um, employment at the end of education will play a very important role. I mean, you know, th there is no doubt at all that we're going to have to fix the mess we've made, and therefore we're going to need people who are trained to do that. Um, so in, in the environmental sector, farming, forestry, uh, sustainable, you know, fishing, so on and so forth, all of that are, are going to require skill sets, which we should be investing in. And if I were a young person now, I'd be thinking very much about, you know, what if I want a job in the future, what would that job entail? And there's no doubt that that sector will, will, will definitely uh, grow. Um, when it comes to, you know, at this point in time when they're when they're young, it, for me, it's always about first hand experience. You know, it's the book's 
great and you know and it's great for instigating an interest but to satisfy that you've got to meet it yourself it's one thing reading about an earthworm it's another feeling one tickle the palm of your hand when you've dug it out of the soil and you're watching it move and, and you're feeling it uh, you know and, and that sort of first-hand encounter is really important so i think allowing people the freedom um, to explore nature on their own terms get dirty fingers get dirty feet get scratched by brambles and stung by nettles uh, which won't harm them in any long term whatsoever is all part of that experience so find some green space take you know your 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 kids out there um and and then allow them the freedom to do that don't be too oppressive you know it doesn't matter if they get muddy mud washes off there's no question about that and wellies are relatively inexpensive if you don't want them to get you know soaking wet feet but i mean i grew up with most of my days with soaking wet feet and i'm still here talking about it so it didn't do me too much harm <laughs> you've not got green feet though from that <laughs> No, no, but we, you know, my parents didn't have a, a lot of money. So there were periods of time when the wellies didn't fit. And I was out there in the tatty Woolworths trainers and, and I did have wet feet, but I, it never put me off. I always was jumping back in the next puddle to see what was on the other side of it. That's amazing. And, and you've got a stepdaughter who, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think she's a zoologist, is she? That's right. She's a zoologist and she's been doing a bit of media. She's been doing some TV. In fact, she's worked uh, with us on Spring Watch on, on several occasions and Autumn and, and Winter Watch. Uh, initially, you know, I, I didn't try. I mean, she grew up surrounded by nature. She was always taken to places. Uh, she traveled with me and we went primarily. Obviously, I was working and, and, and filming wildlife. Um, she was quite intent on pursuing a, a career in drama. And then and one day she had an epiphany and she came around and she said, I've got something important to tell you. And I thought she's dumping her first boyfriend. Uh, but no, it wasn't that. It was that she said, I've changed my mind. I want to do, I want to do biology. So she had to redo some of her GCSEs and then change her, the structure of her, her A levels. And then she went on to do a degree in zoology and, um, and she's written a couple of books and uh yeah and and she's passionate about it and she's just been leading a tour actually uh, uh, you know following in her stepfather's footprints um you, you know showing people birds so yeah she's massively into it but yeah. in sometimes slightly a, a different way she has always been um you know very focused on animal welfare issues she's very focused on in environment in a way that obviously i am now but i wasn't when i was her age remember i was her age in the 1960s and early 70s and those issues were not at the forefront of our concerns then sadly um so yeah she's grown up uh, with a slightly different um, uh, approach to it but with a similar amount of passion and curiosity yeah but that's that's great you're, you know you're um you know I, we, we, we i think what we're what trying to say is we don't understand sometimes or rather we can't comprehend the influence we can have on the children that we raise and you know whether she went into drama or not is almost irrelevant but the influence you had on her and her path and her life and who she is as a person even the campaigning she doesn't need to be a zoologist to campaign or be part of trying to make a difference and trying to improve things but what we i think sometimes as parents we forget that everything we do and everything we say has an influence on those little lives as they get older and they get bigger and you know that's you know, she's now, when she went at that moment where she kind of pivoted, you yeah. must have thought, oh, she has been listening well, then. Straight, strangely enough, I, I, I've always been massively into art, uh, you know, painting, sculpture, those sorts of things. And it was, it was always difficult for me as a child and a young person because I, I was torn between, you know, essentially biology and, and art. 
Um, and now, you know, I spend most of my time, if I do have spare time, I'm in art galleries or I'm talking to artists or I'm looking at art. Last night I'm watching art videos on YouTube. It's that sort of thing. You know, I suppose the grass is always greener and you, you hanker for things that, that you don't do. So when she was young, um, I used to take her to lots of art galleries. I took her to, you know, rock concerts, have friends in the music industry. So we would go to those. I took her once or twice to the opera. Her mother would take her to ballet. I'd, you know, I tried to give her a, a, a broad, a, a sort of an experience of the creative world as, as, as I could. She had the same reaction to opera as I had. We went the once. Um, but, um, she, she loved ballet and that her mother took her to. And so I, I was very intent that I wasn't going to push her in, into anything. But like you say, you know, I, I wasn't doing it directly, but by, you know, sitting in the back of a dusty Land Rover in various far flung parts of the world, a very influential period in her life. And she's looking out the window and there's a lion just the other side of it. It must have, you know, sown some seeds that eventually germinated. But I just want to show you one thing because it's within reach of where I am at the moment. And I've got it framed in my, um, in my office. So, you know, I'm not someone who would ever claim to be proud of things. I, I'm slightly scared by the, the sort of pride, as it were. Um, but I think we can justifiably sometimes feel pleased with the, you know, the energies and endeavors that we put into trying uh, to shape, you, you know, young people's lives in a, in a positive way. And back in 2019, um, she was living with me in, in, in the New Forest and in quite a remote property, and we were there together. And um, I, I came back one day, and uh, there was a post-it note. Here. I've got it here. It's sort of framed in, 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 the, in, in this little frame, a fancy frame. And it was on the kitchen door, and it says, gone to rebel. And she'd gone to join wow. Extinction Rebellion. And, yeah. <laughs> well, the fact that it's in a fancy frame and it's on my yeah. sideboard says everything. At that point in time, I thought, I've done what I needed to do. You know, because I didn't, I didn't say to you, because uh, I, I, you know, I was doing things with Extinction Rebellion, and, and I, I didn't wasn't encouraging her to do it. She just did it of her own volition. She felt so compelled that she needed to exercise her voice to try and influence, you know, positive change when it came to climate um, breakdown and biodiversity loss. So yeah, the little post it. It's one of my one of my most treasured things. Yeah, <laughs> you, it's, it's a framed moment where you can kind of go, "Oh, I've done all right here." Yeah, I've done that okay. That, for me, that was like you know, if she'd scored a you know, if she scored a winning goal, um, yeah, penalties in the World Cup final, it, that's the sort of equivalent. You know, yeah. if she was playing the Hollywood Bowl as a rock star, or whatever. Yeah. You know, this is the epitome for me. She, you know, she didn't ever. She doesn't need to go any further now. Gone to rebel. That, that <laughs> done. Your, your work is complete, Chris. Well done. <laughs> um, what, what would you say? Like for me, I was always quite outdoorsy. So I, I kind of got the kids and we went in the woods and we would dug holes with our hands and we did some of that jumped over rivers and streams and things. So I was quite happy and comfortable doing that with, with my kids. But what would you say to parents who think, who are listening and thinking, Oh, maybe I would like to get out more, but I don't really know where to begin. Maybe they're city you know, maybe they live in a block of flats in the cities and, and green space is harder to come by, whatever. What do you say to those kind of parents in that situation? Well, firstly, it's a very serious concern um, that people don't have adequate access to green spaces. And even when those green spaces are available, I mean, if we take our capital, and, and that's typical of many of our larger metropolitan cities, there is a lot of green space there. It's got lots of parks, nature reserves, right into the heart of the city. Some of them really good, you know, if, if for people like myself, they, they, they attract a great range of species. Um, so I think green space is, is, is basically always available 
But you're absolutely right. You've hit a critical cultural nail on the head where people feel it's not available for them because in a way they're almost intimidated by the thought of going there because they they don't know what it is. And sometimes, you know, they're afraid that, uh, you know, their children might say, what sort of tree is that? And they may not know the answer. Mm. What I would say is, you know, share the experience, share that discovery with that young person. You don't always have to be a leader. You know, when I took Megs to the opera, I don't know anything about opera. I I couldn't spell the title you know still don't now right (laughs) now well we learned a little bit you know but so we went in we sat down we got out my phone and we literally went on 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 google and we googled the opera we read what it was all about we read you know the history of it and why it had been written and who the principal characters were and all that sort of stuff then it came on and we watched it and then we had a conversation about what we liked and what we didn't like about it and and it was a learning experience for both of us but we shared it from point zero I, I think there's always a, a thing that we, you know, we're expected to be cleverer and more knowledgeable than young people. But frankly, that's really hard anyway, because mm. they, they learn things, you know, now at such a pace and of such different topics that, you know, I mean, again, going back to just my own experience, you know, I would always try to help her with her home, homework where appropriate. But I spent quite a lot of my time having to learn alongside her because the syllabus had changed and she was learning things that I hadn't been taught and and learning to sort of do the homework together. I found it really rewarding and and really enjoyable. I, I, I don't think there's any need just because you're older to be smarter I mean, it doesn't always work that way. And and the other thing is that there's all, you know, people who have an interest in the, the natural world are, are invariably, not all of them, but a lot of them are very keen to tell other people about what they know in, in a generous way, not in a smarty pants way, but in a generous way. So if you do go to a nature reserve and you do go into a hide, all you need to do is sit down alongside someone who looks like they know what they're talking about because they've maybe got some posh binoculars and a green jacket. Um, and, and you can just ask them, you know, I'm new to this. I'm really interested. You know, can you tell me what that is? And can you tell me what it's doing? And, 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 and you'll soon find that people will be very keen to tell you. It's a shared, it's a sharing thing. The passion is so strong that we want to communicate it to others. So, um, you know, there are always local natural history groups. There are local wildlife trusts if you want to go further afield. But green space is always within your reach. And, yeah. you know, and, and, and you should reach out to it. And again, this is not because I'm saying that people need to go and engage with nature, i.e. listen to birdsong and count butterflies, our mental and physical health benefits of being in that green space are, are significant and they ought to be accessible to everyone. So that's something that, you know, it does concern us. We, and we are doing what we can to, to address that and make sure that as many people from whatever background it is as possible can, can get into it and get the benefits. Yeah. And, and do you think there's a fear as well? Like earlier on, you said about allowing our kids to get stung by stinging nettles and scratched by brambles and a bruise from falling out a tree or or whatever it is. Do you think that now in 2024 parents are more hesitant to do those things because there's a fear of like, are we a bit precious about some of those uh, physical scratches and bumps? I think we are. I I think we are. And I think we're also over-concerned about, well, you know, basic hygiene. And we know that yeah. there's an increased incidence in allergies because young people aren't exposed to the things that they eventually become allergic to, simplistically speaking, it's maybe slightly more, you know, scientifically complex than that. But, you know, 
we are dependent on a gut flora of bacteria. Our bodies are covered in bacteria. We have different species living on our forehead than we have living behind our ears. You know, we are a substrate for life. And without that life, you know, we, we basically are, are, are worse off. We have bacteria on our skin, for instance, which act as natural antiseptics, again, simplistically speaking, if we get cuts and so on and so forth. So if you're constantly preoccupied with that sort of level of hygiene, you're actually probably doing more harm um, th than good. You know, young, we know that there are bacteria in soil, which we come into contact with. It's one of the reasons why people find gardening such an enjoyable uh, hobby, pursuit, profession. Um, and, and that, you know, is a body, that, a bacteria which has a chemical impact on our body, which is an in, in entirely positive one. And that's just like one group of species that we're talking about. So, you know, we didn't ought to be worried about the mud and the cuts and the scratches. Obviously, we were we worried about serious injuries. And we're not mm. denying that. Um, but that's what I say. You know, when you go out, it's not a question of abandoning your you don't have to just take the kids out to a park and then sit in the car and, and let them wander off. You know, that would be deemed irresponsible. But what you could do is walk 15 yards behind them, keeping a rough eye on them. But if one mm. of them wants to climb a tree and it's not too high or it gets stung by a bramble, uh, sorry, a nettle or falls in a puddle, it's not really such a big deal, is it? You know, you can no. dry them off. Skin's remarkable stuff, you know, and, and, and also kids are so remarkably resilient when it comes to getting cold and wet or too hot or too, you know, um, that, and, and they seem to almost revel in it. So it is about allowing those, uh, allowing those freedoms and yeah, and stepping back from the fact that, you know, there has been this growth and a, and a misconception that the, you know, the outdoor world can be a dark and dangerous place for young people to be. And I would argue it's the complete opposite. It's a repository yeah. of enormous gifts, uh, uh, which can fuel a lifelong fascination, be enormously beneficial in terms of mental and physical health. The, the woods are not a dark and dangerous place. They're, they're, no. they're a, a treasure trove of remarkable things that last a lifetime. I, I would personally, I would go as far as saying it's, one of the fundamentals it's absolutely critical it's not and, and and almost it's a non-negotiable you know i think it should be a standard practice that every child should be taken outside i mean it is a school you know that's why they have playtimes and lunch exactly. so that they can go out and, and do it so really from a parenting point of view every parent should be taking their child children out as regularly as they possibly can um I want to ask about um, the campaigning that you are involved in, partly because from my point of view, it's quite overwhelming with this feels like there's so many things we need to make right where that that's overwhelming. Like, should I campaign for this? Should I campaign for this? Like, so what, as, I guess if people are listening and they feel similar, maybe they don't, but if they did, where would you say is the kind of, this is the crux of really where we need to focus our energies? Well, I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, you only need to go onto social media. If you go onto my social media feed, so my Twitter X feed, um, you'll, you'll see in the course of an hour enormous numbers of problems and they can range for threats upon you know individual species of animal or plant they can be habitat threats they can be loss of habitat through development they can be sewage spills they can be bigger picture stuff like uh, the issues of, of continuing to exploit uh, fossil fuels animal agriculture then there's animal welfare uh, particularly farm animal welfare and so forth it, 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 can, it can you just some days you just sort of think oh my goodness me I need 50 lifetimes all at once to be addressing yeah. this I think the first thing to say is you know is where can you be most effective? 
because it, 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 it eventually becomes very hard work to sort of, you know, push a stone up a hill if you're never going to get to the top or even think you are. So I think where can you be effective? Well, the first thing is what are you most passionate about? Because that's where you're going to put most of your energy. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're really passionate about animal welfare, focus upon that and then think, OK, you know, what isn't changing and what would you like to change for the better in terms of animal welfare? And that would lead you to research who was doing what in terms of campaigning and, and lobbying and maybe doing petitions or demonstrations, whatever it happens to be in terms of, you know, trying to instigate that change and then think, you know, how can I comfortably fit into that? And many people may think, you know, actually, I don't feel confident to to go on a demonstration and I, you know, will pick at a gate of a, a place where there's animal testing or something like that. But that doesn't matter. That shouldn't disempower you. You know, you could communicate with other people. You could set up a social media stream to spread um, accurate information about the problem. Um, you could set up petitions. I mean, there are many passive things that you can do, and they're all part of a portfolio, a necessary portfolio that will drive change. So please don't think that you have to be getting arrested on the streets in order to influence change. Uh, You don't. Um, Some people will go that far. And it's, again, an equally important part of that portfolio, I think. But but there will be something that you can do. And I suppose when it comes to that, you should always sort of think, well, I'm comfortable with that, but I'm not comfortable with this. And then what I would say to people is, look, take a step up the ladder, take a risk, you know, push yourself a little bit, because the world needs pushing at this point. If we're going to try and shift it into a place where it can recover and be a healthy place for our children to grow into. And that's down to us acting now. So I always imagine the worst possible scenario is that if some stage in the future, uh, you're sat down somewhere and someone comes up to you, a young person comes up to you, might be a, you know, great granddaughter, great grandson, grandson, could be something like that, you know, or even just a, a young person. And they come up and they ask you, what did you do when you really needed to do something when it really needed to count? And if you can't look them in the eye and said, you know, I did, I got up and I shouted and I did this and I did that. If you can't say that, then you're going to be in a very uncomfortable position. And that's not something that I want my conscience to have to countenance. So uh, that's a driving force for me, alongside the guilt of the fact that our generations haven't done enough and now we're trying to catch up. And so those do fuel me to sort of take the extra, go the extra mile, take the extra step, take a bit more risk and, and work a bit harder. But I mean, ultimately, it's about being effective. There's no, I've got to tell you, there is no point in going and get arrested on the streets unless it's making a difference. That's just going to harm you and your life and have negative impacts on you and your family and everything else. And if it isn't making a difference, it's simply not worth it. Um, so it's whatever you do, you've got to shape it to make sure that it's making a positive impact. Yeah. And, and at what point do we involve our children? Because I want my kids to grow up knowing that we need to do things to improve what's around us and that we have to be responsible and, um, you know, environmentally friendly and sustainable. I want them to know all of those things, but I also don't want to be doom and gloom and you're, you know, it's, it's a pretty bleak outlook, even though it is, but, but I, so at what point do we involve our kids? And I guess on what level do we involve our kids? And I suppose there's an age, you know, what age are they, but generally speaking, how do we get our children aware of these problems and involved in that kind of campaigning? Well, I think it's, it's about empowerment, isn't it? It's about letting them know that they matter. You know, their voice matters, their opinions matter, their lives matter, their hopes and aspirations matter as individuals, you know. Um, so it's about listening to them and, and making sure that, you know, it's not just about listening. It's about empowering them and giving them responsibility and trusting them to do things. So within a, 
a family context, maybe you, you stick your neck out and you delegate to them uh, a task which would involve them thinking about a multitude of issues that would be quite challenging, but they're bound to make mistakes. And then it's about obviously encouraging them to do and, and congratulating them for the things that they do right. And, and maybe either ignoring or very gently explaining the problems with the things that they get wrong. But allowing them to get things wrong, I think, is really, really important. We've got this whole risk aversity. No one wants to make a decision. Everyone's looking over their shoulder. No one wants to stick their neck out. They're going to get criticism in the press. They're going to get criticism uh, in on social media. They're going to get criticism from their friends and family. Well, so what? I mean, you know, it doesn't matter. You've got to stick up for what you believe in. And, and young people are, are, are often very clear speaking and clear thinking. And, and I think it's important that we respect their energies and their ambitions and, and their abilities. And again, going back to your key point, it should be fueled by hope. I, I, I mean, I'd, look, I'd give up and go and get drunk somewhere if I didn't think there was any hope, you know. Um, there is. We, we, we know that if we transition away from fossil fuels to renewables, we can make a significant difference. Our problem is that we currently have a government that isn't taking that lead. Our job, therefore, as citizens is to ask our government uh, democratically and peacefully to change their minds. We elected them, after all. They're there to represent us. And so, again, I think explaining that, you know, that the power of the individual to young people is really important. And in, in, I, it's interesting from my point of view. So my father um, had a tremendous you know, respect for authority. Um, but at the same time, he, he taught me to always question that authority. It was rather weird. You know, my dad would get very upset when the police came around because I'd been up to no good and done something. Um, but at the same time, he would always say, if someone tells you to do something, you've got to always ask yourself why they're telling you to do that. Is it the right thing to do? Mm. And so, again, I think that's really important, keeping those options open for young people, for them to make their own minds up about what they see as right as wrong, uh, or wrong and, and good and bad. And if they're, if they're upset about what they see as wrong and bad, then they should be in, encouraged to use that voice. And, and that obviously starts at home, continues at school, goes into the community. Um, and, and, and it's about trust, isn't it, really? If you ask you know a young person what they think you've got to be prepared for the answer and yeah. they may not agree with you and and that's and i kind of like that i kind of like the fact that they don't agree with things that i think it challenges me it makes me think yeah. as well and of course we're we, scared of disagreeing yeah and, and 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 also you know we should as adults retain the right to change our mind and what could be more joyous than changing your mind because you've learned something or you've been challenged by a young person that's brilliant yeah, no, I like that. I like that. I've also got visions as well of kids being told at school to do certain things and they're always going, but why? Why am I doing that? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I like that. I like that. Um, Chris, I, I, there's one question I also want to ask that's completely selfish. Um, so perhaps we can end with this um, truly, truly selfish question because it, it boggles my mind. But at the start as well, when you're talking about your new book, uh, you mentioned that wasps are involved and how they have a vital role within the ecosystem and the habitat. And I would really like to know what that role is, yeah. because I think if there's one insect that just is purely on the planet to irritate people, it's the wasp. So <laughs> please, I'm, 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 I imagine there is an answer, but please yeah, there tell is, me. There is a good answer. But what's I just their say significance? That if, if I had a pound for every time I've been asked, what are wasps for? I could probably comfortably retire. Um, not that I would, but I mean, there's too much to do, but you know, my, you get my point. Um, yeah. Look, 
if an, an animal exists because it can, and there is no redundancy in nature. So wasps exist because there's a job to do that effectively at this point in, in, in time, nothing else is doing. So they've, they've found a niche which they occupy. And, and what we know is that the more niches that are occupied that can be, the more resilient and robust an ecosystem is, the more we can push it and shove it, the more it can take catastrophes like simple things like fires or disease or flooding, physical damage to that, it can be more resilient. And, and then if it, in terms of extinctions, you know, the more, uh, you know, niches that are packed with different types of animals that can be at that point in time and space, uh, the more resilient it is. So if an animal exists, it's, it's there because it's got a reason to be. Now, the reason that wasps are there is that they are really important insect predators. So the animals that buzz around in the summertime are infertile females. They are not they're feeding on nectar, sweet stuff. That's why they annoy you. That's why they're coming after your beer, after your ice cream, yeah. after your sweets, whatever it is, because they just want sugar, fuel to keep them going. What they're doing um, is they're they're going out and they're, they're they're carnivores. They're catching and killing other species of invertebrate and they're feeding those to the grubs in their nests. So they are really important when it comes to pest management you know, because we think of many of those inverts as pests in our gardens and in our farmed environments. And they will catch enormous numbers of flies and caterpillars and beetles, spiders, so on and so forth, some of which are deemed by humans to be to be pests. Um, so from that point of view, what would you rather do? Would you rather have a, a wasp nest in the corner of your shed that, uh, that are basically helping out on your veg patch by getting rid of all of those pesky cabbage white caterpillars or would you rather spray them with toxic chemicals which is killing everything in your space and potentially harming you as well if you eat any of that produce yeah. so you know they play an incredibly important role as an insect predator and in fact they're very easy to manage because wasps are programmed neurologically programmed only to be able to to sting if that what's antagonizing them is moving. Now, that's not to say if you sit on a wasp, you know, it's going to sting you because you're directly harming it. Yeah. But um, that th you have to be moving. And even if you, you know, were to, I'm not suggesting that anyone should, but I, I, I do. Um, if you go close to a wasp nest, if you stay still, they can't sting you. They, they, you've got to be moving. So you can, I can sneak up to a wasp nest and move very slowly up to it, like moving, you know, sort of like a, you know, uh, uh, almost like a game. And then at the last minute, if I swipe my arm sideways beneath the nest, they'll come out and sting, sting my arm. Um, so they need that. They also, they will right. respond to the smell of mammal breath because obviously they associate with, you know, that with mammal predators that would damage their nest and eat their, eat their brood. Um, the downside is that if a wasp stings you, at that point, it releases a chemical which negates those factors. And then any other wasp smelling that in the air will then sting you without movement or smelling your breath or anything else. Yes. So the best thing to do is, is to, when, when you, if a wasp is approaching you and it's being annoying in the pub garden, what I always do is just pour a little beer on the other end of the table so that it's got its own supply of beer. And don't, whatever you do, wave your arms about, you're doing the worst possible thing. Um, and that's sort of stimulating them into a sense where they might, might sting you highly yeah. unlikely away from the nest of course because they're not you know, suicidal animals um but rest assured they're there and they're doing okay. a great job and also if you do feed one a bit of ice cream bit of sweet bit of beer um have a close look at it they're exquisitely beautiful they're yeah. i mean they are just so stunning stunning little insects all of those black and white bands their eyes their heads I'm a bit of a wasp fan, as you can tell. Oh, <laughs> the, the wasp society. I wouldn't have yeah. many members, but it just, you know. You support the underdog. That's yeah, you've got to always jump in the underdog, haven't you?
<laughs> I love that. No, maybe this is the year then that my my detest for wasps might shift ever so slightly. Come on, um, come I on. I want you to sign up. You, you can be secretary of the Wasp Society yeah, of the I'm UK. In. I'm in. That's fine. Yeah, let's do it. Let's make it happen. Um, Chris, thank you so much. I, I feel like there's so much we could unpack further, but um, but it's been a real honour chatting. Thank you for your time. If people want to find your book, where's the best place for them to do that? Uh, go online, try and get it from small bookshops. Obviously, we'd like to support our small bookshops. We don't like to encourage people to buy it from large, non-taxpaying companies. Um, and obviously, other than that, high, all the uh, you know good high street booksellers will have it too. Um, so I'd encourage people to, to, to get it there. And it, it, it is a book that um, adults can sit down and, and, and share, read with young people, say principally six to nine year olds, because there was plenty of things in there which I hope that you know, adults will learn as, as well. The whale pump, you know, the shifting of, of nutrients throughout the oceans due to whale poo is something that I think should fascinate as many adults as it does children. Yeah. You've just sold the book to me. I'm going to go and buy my <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, Chris, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure um, and, and have a great day. We'll see you soon. Thank you. A Dad's Net original podcast.